I'm Laura Barrera, and welcome to the 12th episode of the No Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Six Strategies to Manage Crop Production Risk on Poorly Drained Clay Pan Soils, is being brought to you by Copperhead Ag. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Copperhead Ag, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel, for sponsoring today's episode. Finally, there is one closing wheel for all of your acres. The Furrow Cruiser has a unique combination of aggressiveness and control that allows it to win yield trials in all conditions. These wheels are the real deal. They will not plug up on you, and the poly material they are made from stands up to heavy abuse. In fact, it's so strong they give it a lifetime guarantee against breakage. If you want to finally have all your furrows closed right, get the most even emergence out of your crop, and have a closing wheel that has proven to pay for itself in the first season, then visit copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how these wheels are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code PODCAST at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code PODCAST at copperheadag.com. Oxygen drives the system. That was one of the key lessons Eddie Hoff took away from the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference in Indianapolis. Farming poorly drained clay pan soils in central Missouri, Eddie understands the importance of getting oxygen into the soils and that if you want to drive your yields up, you have to drive up the oxygen in your soils. In this presentation from the 2016 conference, Eddie shares the six strategies he implements on his no-till farm to improve soil oxygen and manage risk on his clay pan soils. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Copperhead Ag, we welcome Eddie to discuss the keys to effective no-till farming on poorly drained clay pan soils. Like you said, my name's Eddie Hoff. Uh, I'm from Boonville, Missouri. My dad started no-tilling back in the 70s. He was the first no-tiller in Cooper County. Some of you guys may remember the 70s. When you started no-tilling, number one, the John Deere planter wasn't out yet. When that thing came out, it revolutionized no-till. But the other problems they had, they didn't have the nitrogen application equipment we have now. They didn't have the herbicides we have now. My dad started no-tilling corn because he had atrazine and Princep. And you could kill about anything with that stuff, including your waterways when it rained too much. <laughs> and we've come a long way. In, the, in 1978, my dad taught a no-till class at the Boonville Area Vocational Technical School, a night class. And he had a big group of people there. In fact, one of my friends, which all the guys I ride with aren't here because they saw this last year at the Boonville Cover Crop Conference. But one of the guys that's here with me and actually is younger than me went to that. And he is one of the most successful no-tillers in the area. Uh, a little bit about myself. When I got, I graduated from University of Missouri with a degree in agronomy. When I got out of school, I went to work for Cargill for four and a half years, and it's probably the best four and a half years I ever spent because I learned how Cargill manages risk. I was a grain merchandiser and a grain elevator manager. 
And to be able to watch how a big company manages risks and utilizes their money was invaluable to me. So everything I do on our farm has to do with risk management, and that's why uh, I, I have the word risk in there. And we're going to go over six strategies that I, I use. Doesn't mean you need to use them. And I always, I've been to, since I came back to farm, I've been to every one of these no-till conferences. In fact, somebody from our family has been to every single one of them. And I always try to pick up one thing, and sometimes you have to relearn stuff. But Ray Ward said something the other day that means everything in production agriculture. And he said that oxygen drives the system. And if you guys are on clay pan soils like I am, you know that we lose our oxygen. Sometimes we lose it three or four times a year. And that's extremely detrimental to crop production. If I was presenting this next year, I would tell you that my number one risk management strategy in crop production is pattern tile. I have the only pattern tile field in Cooper County, Missouri, and it's in a creek bottom. We did it about 10 or 12 years ago. We, we, and, and a nice thing about today is you can take your yield maps, especially when we have a year like we've had this last year, and you can find out where your tile will return you the most dollars per acre. And I'm gonna pattern tile probably the first upland field in Cooper County next month that's ever been done. And it's gonna be probably the best return on investment that we've ever had. But just remember one thing as I go through what I have to say is oxygen drives the system. If you wanna drive your yields up, you have to drive your oxygen up in your soil because oxygen provides the availability of nutrients to your crops. My dad has preached this to me from day one, do your homework before you do your field work. Part of doing your homework is what you guys are doing here this week, and it's the same thing I did this week. And one of the things I've learned in risk management on the farm is there are certain aspects of our farm that we have to do really, really well. I have to do my crop insurance stuff really well. I have to do my crop production stuff really well. And I have to do my grain marketing stuff really well. And I have what I call an unofficial board of directors. And I have people that are really, really good at each area of those things. Because you guys know, as I know, that as farmers, we have a ton of different things we're supposed to be really good at if you want to have a really efficiently managed farm. So I have, I have sought out a tremendously good crop insurance agent. I have two guys that are tremendous in grain marketing. And I come to things like this for grain production. That's part of doing your homework before you do your field work. The good Lord blessed my dad with the ability to be very exacting. Someone you would know as a perfectionist. So you can imagine that him doing his homework is exponential toward somebody like me who is not very exacting. I struggle with it. I ask the good Lord, help me be more organized. I wasn't born that way. So I frustrate my dad sometimes. But that is something I try to live by. Here are the six management strategies I'm going to talk about. No-till farming, a lot of you guys are going to be really interested in the nightcrawler thing. Uh, cover crops, split nitrogen applications, variable rate seeding, and water use efficiency hybrids. Like I say, if I had to do this thing next year, it's going to be pattern tile. I strongly believe that that is the future of grain production on clay pan soils. 
Cooper County, Missouri is right here. You can see the Missouri River. I-70 runs from St. Louis to Kansas City. I'm right here. The Missouri, actually, I live right here. Our farm is right there. The Missouri Ozarks start right there, about two miles south of our main farm. This is what our landscape looks like. The terraces don't show up too good, but every field here has terraces in it. You can kind of see them there. They're not parallel, they're contour. They were built years and years and years ago. If you think about terraces on a field, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have terraces, if you get an annual rainfall of 40 inches a year, your terraces get an annual rainfall of about 80. And your terrace tops get an annual rainfall of about 30 because 10 of it runs off. Where are your best crops at? Always. On your terrace tops. Because your terrace top, your terraces never lose their oxygen. Part of it's because the dirt's a little deeper, but a big part of it is your terraces never lose your oxygen. That's why I say pattern tile is going to drive what happens on these clay pan soils in the future, and it's already starting to begin. Any of you guys got some of this stuff sticking out of your fields? That's how close to the Missouri Ozarks we are. The main ditches that run through the farm, at most we have three feet of dirt. There's places up on the hills that are more than that. We have this stuff coming out of the side hills in places also. All right, a clay pan soil. One of the gentlemen that's here was asking me, what's a clay pan soil? I, I was at uh, Jules Willits Field Day a couple years ago, and one of the University of Missouri guys had this slide up there, so I stole it from him. I took my iPad out and stole it. Here's what a clay pan soil is. Down the side here is your depth. This is just where on the slope it is. So this would be the top of the slope, this would be the side slope, and this would be the bottom of the slope. Here's your clay content. What you do is you follow this yellow line. So on top of the slope, on your flat areas on top of the hill, your clay content starts out at about 10 or 15, well, let's see here, yeah, 10%. It goes down and then all of a sudden you hit the clay pan and your clay jumps up to 60% right here. And then it backs off. And I'm gonna show you what that does to your water moving through your soils. On your side slopes where you've, where you've had some more erosion, you don't have this depth right here. And 30 centimeters is about 12 inches. So you got 12 inches of silt loam on top of 60% clay pan. Right here you have maybe six or seven inches of silt loam on top of a 60% clay pan. And at the foot where everything's eroded to, you have maybe 18 inches, but you still have that darn clay pan down there. That's what a clay pan soil is. If you think about a bathtub, if you got a good silt loam soil, six feet deep, it's like you don't have a plug in a bathtub. If you got a clay pan soil, your bathtub plugs right there. And it may have a little bitty hole in it, let some water out sometimes. All right, I got this out of the Cooper County Soils book when they went through 25 years ago and did a new soil survey. The farm I just showed you is this Crestmead soil right here. So you got a 32A, which is the less eroded form of Crestmead, and 32B2, which is the more eroded. The most important column in my mind here is permeability, and that's how fast water is gonna move through this soil. So if we go to the 32A in the zero to 11, which is your A horizon, water moves through at 0.6 to two inches per hour. 
one of the things I do as part of doing my homework, whenever I get the opportunity to talk to somebody that's raised three, four, and 500 bushel corn, I just walk right up to them and start talking. Talk to Randy Dowdy on the phone. I talked to uh, oh, the guy that just set the yield record out in Virginia. Uh, I actually talked to Francis Childs once. And there is one thing that all their soils have in common. They drain very well, very deep. Francis Childs told me his, his uh, tile is five to six feet deep. But if you remember what he did, he used to use that modified moldboard plow. He, he built himself 18 inches deep of oxygen in the soil every single year. And he did it year after year after year. Which goes back to Ray Ward saying, oxygen drives the system. It makes your nutrients more available. Uh, Randy Dowdy was telling me that, oh, his soils are so tough. He, he and I had a discussion for a while on the phone. I got lucky and got a hold of him, but uh, his soils are so tough, his CECs are eight. So immediately in my mind, he's got quite a bit of sand in his soil. Well, that may be bad until you put irrigation over the top of it. But it's really, really good because he's got a lot of oxygen in his soil. And then when you put an irrigator over the top of it, you can spoon feed your nutrients. David Hula is the same way in Virginia. And so is, uh, what's his name? They used to uh, set all the soybean yield records in South Missouri. Kip Colors. He has the best soil in the state of Missouri. And, and I was pioneer used to haul people down there. So I went on the bus one time and I asked him, first question I asked him, do you have pattern tile in your field? He said, all the professionals tell me I don't need it, but I pattern tiled my contest field anyway. <laughs> that tells you how important oxygen deep in the soil profile is to these guys that are setting these big records. So if we look at this permeability column, this Crestmead soil in the A horizon, the water moves through it at 0.6 to two inches per hour. Whenever you go to install pattern tile, they have what they call a drainage coefficient. And that's how fast you can take water off your field. And the drainage coefficient, normally you want to put it at 0.35. The higher drainage coefficient, the more it's going to cost you per acre. But most of, them, most of the systems are designed to remove 0.35 inches of water per day. On this silt loam soil, it'll move 0.6 to 2 inches per hour. From 11 to 18 inches, all of a sudden it goes to 0.2 to 0.6, so one third is fast. But look at where the clay pan is, where your clay right here goes to 42 to 60%. The water only moves through it at 0.6 to 0.2 inches per hour. 0 .06. 0.06, so thank you. It's one tenth as fast as what your topsoil is. That's like putting a plug in your bathtub. And then when you got a big rain, you got a big all your oxygen goes out of your topsoil, which is what causes us a lot of our problems in crop production on clay pan soils. That's why I say, I think over time, this revolution to pattern tile is really gonna take hold on these clay pan soils. Because the only way to fix this problem, right here, in my opinion, is tile. Below that, your clay drops to 42%, 30%, and your permeability goes to 0.2 to 0.6.
Here's what my soil looks like. This is a virgin grass area out around our grain bins and such. So I, there's your A horizon. Your 18 inch area is about right here that you just saw. And then this is what our subsoil clay looks like. And this is what a farm soil floor looks like right here. So it's pretty decent from there up, which is eight inches. And this is on top of the slope. Then you get into some clay and then you get into your clay pan plug. All right, so what is it about these clay pan soils? They reduce nutrient availability. We just talked about that with oxygen. If you lose your oxygen, your microbes aren't working anymore. And your microbes, what comes out of the back end of that microbe is what feeds your soil system. The more of those things you can have and the longer you can keep them, the better off you are. That's why Francis Child modified, plowed his soils 18 inches deep every single year. It reduces stand establishment because of the fact that that area above the ground in the spring fills with water. And if you think about it, in Cooper County, Missouri, March, April, May, and June are the four wettest months we have. In those four months, if you look at average rainfall over time, we probably get 15 inches of rain. There's no way that 15 inches is gonna move through that 0.06 to 0.2 permeability. So what doesn't go in runs off, but first it fills up that bathtub. Reduces rooting depth because roots will not grow in the absence of oxygen. It's the hardest thing I've had to teach my dad, and I think I finally got it across to him. They won't. They'll grow down to the water table and stop. They have to have oxygen to grow. It can cause nitrogen loss. If you got nitrates out there and you're, you have no oxygen in the soil, those aerobic bacteria are going to get oxygen somewhere. And nitrates, the chemical formulation is NO3 minus. They strip one of those oxygens off that NO3 minus to use to live, and now you got NO2 minus, which is nitrous oxide gas. And that stuff goes up in the atmosphere. We don't lose much nitrogen through it moving down through the soil, we lose it by the microbes stripping the oxygen off the nitrate, turns it into nitrous oxide gas, and it goes up out of the soil. It reduces, or it increases erosion potential because what can't go down through the soil runs off the soil. That's why, that's why the old band-aid's been terraces, because it increases erosion. And the only way you could farm these, these slopes that we have and a lot of other people in Missouri is to terrace them. You cut your, you cut your slope length down. It was a good band-aid. Now it's an excuse to do conventional tillage. Reduces microbial activity and reduces ability to yield in dry summers. So if you think in the spring we get all this rain and it fills up that bathtub and roots will not grow where there's no oxygen, your roots grow to here and then it dries out and your roots grow to here. We got to get rid of all that excess water in these clay pan soils. If you look, the University of Missouri did a research tile field in Northeast Missouri. They put it in in 2002. You can dig it up on the web. They put their tile, it's a flatter soil than I have, but it's a clay pan soil. They put their tile in on 40 foot centers, 30 foot centers, 20 foot centers. They also did sub irrigation back through the tile. So they have, they have drainage, they have no tile, and they have drainage sub irrigation. The drainage only portion on 40 foot centers 
The average yield increase since 2002 has been 22 bushels an acre on corn and nine bushel an acre on soybeans. But the interesting thing is, and once I showed this to my dad, it clicked. In those years when it was dry in the summer, their yields were actually higher because they got rid of all that excess water in the spring and they had a deeper, much more robust root system that could then draw, those draw that moisture out in the summer to help their crop yields. All right, strategy one is no-till. Uh, here's what our crop rotation is. This is a no-till field of corn in the wheat double crop residue. We normally don't plant into this much residue, and I'll, I'll tell you why. So I could say I'm a no-tiller, but I cheat one year out of three. Okay, so let's start with our, our rotation is corn, soybeans, wheat, double crop soybeans. So we plant our corn crop, no-till or stale seed bed. The stale seed bed part is this. When you harvest wheat, and I'm in an intensive wheat management system, probably don't have time to go over it, but our wheat averages 80 bushel, 90 bushel. You got a lot of residue. And then we plant double crop beans into that, and our APH on double crop beans is 32 bushel an acre, I think. You got a lot of residue. On these clay pan soils, we got a mat of residue an inch and a half thick. We have to dry that out because all of our ground is terraced. So we don't have to dry out our terrace tops, but we have to dry out anywhere the water congregates. And every single terrace channel we have is somewhere the water congregates. So what we do is we, after double crop bean harvest, we normally spread poultry litter. It also helps get that stuff worked in the ground a little bit. And we just tickle the ground. My dad calls it tickling, but we tickle the ground about an inch deep just to stir just a little bit of dirt into that residue because we have to do that to get the ground to dry in the spring. We also do some straight no-till. I got a creek bottom that I've had corn down there seven years in a row. The last three years have been no-till corn on corn. I then uh, seed a cover crop cocktail normally. I didn't get this done this fall because one of the guys that works for me quit and we just couldn't get it all done. But in the past, what I've used is 10 pounds of annual ryegrass, a pound of turnips, a pound of radish, a pound of rape, and 10 or 12 pounds of spring oats or cereal rye. We have quite a bit of cereal rye planted this year. Then we no-till soybeans into that. After soybean harvest, we no-till wheat into it. Then we no-till double crop soybeans into it. So we have a corn crop growing, a cover crop growing, soybeans growing. As soon as soybean harvest is over, around 1st October, we plant wheat. We have wheat growing. Then we no-till double crop beans into that in the June. Once that's harvested, we, we work the ground real shallow. And I see at a light rate of cereal rye, usually about a half a bushel to the acre. And I'll show you pictures of what that looks like. We're using a McFarland Inside 5000, I think it is now. It's one of those rigs you can adjust the gang angle. It's like a disc, but you can adjust the gang angle. We do some no-till corn on corn in our creek bottom. This is a picture of planting soybeans. This was after, tw after 2012, I planted a mix of 35 pounds of cereal rye and five pounds of rape. 
and that was planting into that. We had a very wet 2013 spring. Not as wet as this last year, but it was wet. Then we plant wheat into, we no-till wheat into soybean residue. And you say, well, he doesn't have any residue there. Well, I'm gonna tell you why here in just a minute. This is, this is what we like our wheat to look like. We run a stripper head when we harvest our wheat. The main advantage, there's two main advantages to a stripper head. Number one, you can fly across the field. You can absolutely move out. If you normally run four mile an hour, you can run six, which helps us get our double crops planted quicker. But the really nice thing is all that residue standing in it. And for you guys that no-till, it's like no-tilling into nothing. It really is. It's just, it's just a, instead of taking half that wheat straw and laying it on the ground, you got it all standing up. And we, we plant our beans with a 1990 CCS drill. It's like there's nothing there. Now we do run, if it, we run straight back and forth. So if we harvest our wheat straight back and forth, we'll drill our soybeans at about a 10 degree angle. And on that 1990 drill, those openers next to the depth gauge wheel just part that straw. You don't want to go across the straw laid down in the wheel tracks, but if you go at a 10 degree angle, it'll just part it right through. It's like there's nothing there. You could do it in a 120 bushel wheat crop. It, it's a beautiful thing. And then double crop soybeans, you guys see this guy here? He's hunting field mice. All right, strategy number two is night crawlers, and this is my favorite topic. Did any of you guys sit in on the earthworm tile drainage thing the other day? Okay, and he said those two work great together, don't they? I'll tell you why I didn't, did night crawlers, and one of the guys asked a question. If a root goes down a night crawler burrow, what does a night crawler do? Still there. He lives with it. And that root is loving it, because all that slime off that nightcrawler has to be a great thing to feed that plant. But it, do, it does not bother the nightcrawlers one bit. So strategy number two is nightcrawlers. First thing is they're residue recycling machines. On our clay pan soils, the hardest thing you have to do is get rid of residue. You got to get rid of water, which we can't do. So you got to get rid of residue, because there's two ways of drying soil out. You either expose it to the wind and the sunlight, or you tile it. It's the only way you can get rid of your excess water. You can put a cover crop on it, so three. Three. This is uh, after soybean harvest on October 1st. This is the exact same spot on October 20th. You see what these night crawlers have done? There's a night crawler mid in there. There's one there. There's. I'll show you how many we have here in a minute. This is November 15th, the exact same spot. I had to stick another colored flag out there because I was having a hard time finding, finding the first one, but this is November 15th. So by November 15th, it went from this to this. Those night crawlers are taking that residue into the ground and they're making that stuff available for your plants. This, this is December 15th. We had a late wheat planting two falls ago and that's why the wheat's so small. We didn't get started planting until November 1st. We normally start planting October 1st. But you can see what these night crawlers have done. So you got a mid in there, 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 a mid in there. The midden is the little roof that the night crawler builds over the top of his hut. So how many night crawlers do you have? Now I'll tell you one thing. When you when you uh, 
harvest wheat with a stripper head and run a drill through it, it lays that long straw down flat. Night crawlers cannot handle that long straw that's attached to the soil surface. Because normally what happens, a night crawler will come out of his burrow at night and he'll grab residue and he'll pull it into his burrow or make that midden with it over the top of his burrow. If you got something this long attached to the soil surface, he can't do nothing with it. So uh, at, a con at the conference two years ago, Jill Clapperton said, I think her number was either six or nine. If you got six or nine middens per square yard, you're doing good. The good doctor that presented the uh, Nightcrawler tile stuff the, uh, yesterday, I think he had 27. I counted here, and there were 16 per square yard, which is 77,440 Nightcrawler middens. Every one of those middens is protecting a Nightcrawler burrow. And my dad first seeded Nightcrawlers on our farm about 25 years ago. Might have been after the first no-till conference because somebody was talking about night crawlers. We didn't think they'd live in this clay subsoil we have, no way. Those things are amazing. And he just threw them out on two or three acres. That patch that he originally threw out on two or three acres is now over 300 acres big. And that's where these numbers came from. So you got this clay pan, how in the world do you get corn roots down through that thing? These nightcrawlers are a beautiful thing. They take that burrow and they, they dig that thing way down here. I don't know exactly how deep, but I do know they go five feet deep. And they burrow right through that. And corn roots will follow those nightcrawler burrows. And I'm gonna show you pictures of it all the way down there. So it's, it's one of those strategies you can employ if you don't have night, if you got a lot of worms, but you don't have nightcrawlers and you wanna get your corn roots deep, to access that moisture in July and August, it works very well. All right, so here I am standing in a soil pit. You can see how deep it is. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five feet deep. That is a corn root at the bottom of that pit growing through a nightcrawler burrow. You see this clay stuff? That's not very pretty. But Mother Nature's devised a way for us to get our corn roots down into that stuff. You know, those nightcrawlers will do it. Here's a soybean root, and I always show the good and the bad. You guys see this right here? What am I doing that's causing that? That's because of doing that shallow tillage after double crop beans. It's a necessary evil. It's a bad thing, but I gotta get rid of that extra water. Most most of my neighbors do tillage ahead of corn because they got to get rid of the water. It is a huge problem on these clay pan soils for corn. On soybeans and wheat and double crop beans, you can get away with it all the time because it's later in the season, it's warmed up. But on corn, we got to get rid of some of our water. You see these boogers right here? This is in a soybean field. That's two feet. So those soybean nodules on that root are 18 inches deep. And they may be deeper, but it was 95 degrees that day. We dug that hole with the front end loader on our tractor and I was down there sweating my eyeballs out and I decided I'm not going any deeper, but soybeans will nodulate down nightcrawler burrows at least 18 inches deep. They have to, soybean nodules have to have oxygen. There's oxygen down those nightcrawler burrows 
probably from top to bottom of that thing. All right, here's some things I've learned about night crawlers. First thing is you have to no-till. If you go in there and destroy their huts and they don't have any residue to come out at night and rebuild them, they're, you're not going to keep your night crawlers. So if you do clean tillage sometime in your system, you're not going to keep your night crawlers. They need as continuous of a food supply as you can provide. They really like cover crops. They really like brassicas. So if you want to, and I'm going I'm to show you how we went about seeding our night crawlers, but if you want night crawlers and a lot of them fast, keep feeding them. Don't give them those dormant times when they don't have anything to eat. You can do very light tillage once in a while. The more you feed them, the faster they grow. They like carbon to nitrogen ratio residue of 35 to 1. That doesn't mean they won't use that 60 to 1 carbon to nitrogen wheat residue, but if there's wheat and double crop soybean residue out there, they're going to eat all or they're going to use all the soybean residue first, and then they're going to go after the wheat residue. It's kind of like when you go to a buffet. You're not, you know, you're not going to eat stuff that's rough on you all the time. You're going to eat a lot of candy, a lot of good stuff. It makes you lazy, but that's what these guys do too. They love brassicas. You can use anhydrous ammonia in our corn production, which is once out every three years, we side dress 100 pounds of anhydrous ammonia. I'm sure it has an effect on them right there in the band or maybe where that gas gets to them, but it has not been detrimental long-term to our night crawlers. I don't know if it's detrimental long-term to the rest of our worms. The more you feed worms, the more you're gonna have. They like manure. We use poultry manure in our system. They really like manure. Uh, if you don't have them, you can seed them. We're gonna talk about that on the next slide and their residue recycling machines, which which we saw that already. If you were here several years ago, uh, Odette Menard, I think it was, showed a video of a night crawler coming out of his burrow at night, grabbing a corn leaf about this long and dragging it to his burrow. So if you can imagine something the size of a pencil grabbing a corn leaf this long and dragging it to their burrow, night crawlers can do that. It's amazing. We'll rejoin Eddie in a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Copperhead Egg, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel, for today's episode. The guys at Copperhead are wondering if you're still running the standard rubber tire or cast iron closing wheels on your planter. The rubber tire and cast closer that come standard on most planters have been beaten consistently by the Furrow Cruiser, no matter what tillage practices or soil type they have been tested in. If you are using one of these outdated systems, then you are likely losing yield. Do yourself a favor and stop by copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how furrow cruisers are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code podcast at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code podcast at copperheadag.com. And before we return to the program, I wanted to let you know about the coffee table book we're producing this spring on the history of no-till. Titled From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming, this book will feature more than 200 pages of personal stories on the impact of no-till, hundreds of full-color images, the evolution of no-till equipment, and much more. For more information or to pre-order the book, visit notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. 
That's notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. Now let's hear more from Eddie on purchasing night crawlers and adding them to your system. All right, where to get them? I just, if you go on the internet and Google wholesale night crawlers, there'll be all kinds of companies that sell night crawlers for the fishing industry. They will work just fine for you. Mine come from Wholesale Bait Company out of Cincinnati. They run less than $80 per 500. They ship them in styrofoam containers with uh, dry ice in them. Uh, how we go about doing it is, I normally do it in the spring where there's wheat planted because there's, a, there's soybean residue there for them to feed on. But I just stick those buggers in a bucket and sit it in my lap on my four-wheeler and drive every 60 feet back and forth across the field and just drop three as I go. I wondered, okay, I'm throwing these things on top of the ground on all this residue, what in the world happens to them? So one day I stuck one of those little field flags there, looked to see what time it was, and I came back 20 minutes later. Two of them I couldn't find until I started digging under the residue, and the third one's tail was sticking out of the ground about a half an inch. So that's how fast they get themselves down into protection. Let's see what else. You got to keep them cool in the refrigerator. Don't put them in the back of your pickup truck and crack the lid because you want them to have oxygen. Because you have a garage full of worms. And don't ask me how I know. <laughs> All right, I drive in 100-foot passes. You can do it however you want. The things run 65 to $80 per 500, so it just depends on how many dollars per acre you want to spend. They're not that expensive. Let's see here. The closer together you drop them, the quicker they'll populate. I normally do it in the spring, but you can do it in the fall. The, the environmental conditions you want, you want, you want it to be damp and cool. The sun can be out if it's damp and cool. That's why I do it in the spring. You don't want the ground frozen at all. So if you guys are way up north, you don't want the ground frozen. Damp and cool is good. Hot and dry is bad. You can, you can spread a lot of night crawlers in a day. He spread, you did yours in two days, right? It's work, but gotta start somewhere. Yeah, yeah, if you guys got questions, just holler. Uh, let's see here, it can be done in the fall. What else we got on here? There's the cost, don't do it on a hot, windy day. Strategy three is cover crops. Here's the reason I do them. Develop root channels, soil erosion control, and to feed the soil biology and worms. I've done some annual ryegrass and I've taken it out of the system, but I'm going to put it back in. Annual ryegrass with wheat is kind of iffy, but I talked to enough people this year that are doing it and they're not having a trouble controlling it in wheat. But I, I always let my stack of farm magazines get about this deep and the other day I decided I better get those out of my way, so I started going through them real quick. And the, only, the one that I pay the most attention to is No-Till Farmer magazine. And there was an article in there, and I think it was Lloyd Murdoch that made the statement that the exudates, the stuff that the roots leak out of annual ryegrass, flocculate clays in the subsoil. To me, that's a beautiful thing for our clay soils. All right, we went over the no-till rotation. Uh, this is what I do. Somebody asked a question yesterday in the uh, earthworm tiling thing. What cover crops should you use for night crawlers? My answer to that would be use, use a cover crop mix that contains narrow carbon to nitrogen 
ratio crops like the brassicas and some wide carbon to nitrogen ratio stuff like cereal rye once it's, the stem starts to elongate. And the reason is those brassicas are gonna be gone in short order. And when you got night crawlers, they're gonna be gone in shorter order. But if you got that high carbon to nitrogen ratio stuff out there also, then you're gonna give them a longer feeding time. So if the brassica stuff's gone in a month, that high carbon to nitrogen ratio stuff is gonna be out there for the next month or the next month after that, so that they have more stuff to eat. Because if the more you feed night crawlers, the faster they will get to sexual maturity. When night crawlers, you've seen pictures of night crawlers, they got that little pink band on them. Those are sexually mature night crawlers. The young ones don't have that and they cannot breed until they get that on them. The more you feed them, the faster they're gonna grow, gonna grow the quicker they're gonna start populating your fields if you seed them out there. All right, so this is kind of what it looks like. This is uh, cereal rye we planted after 2013 double crop bean harvest. We didn't get a very good stand. I didn't know why. Cereal rye will grow on anything, right? <laughs> You can throw that stuff on this carpet and put a little water on it. It's going to be three inches tall in no time. Went to the cover crop thing Wednesday morning, or was it Tuesday morning? And uh, they said Liberty has a 70-day rotation restrictions to a lot of these cover crops. Well, I'd have never thought that. I, I use Liberty beans. I'm thinking the Liberty dinged up my cereal right here. This was last year. This is, this is what a half a bushel of cereal rye looks like. This was probably on about April 15th this spring. I love planting into something like that. Corn's planted in there. We got a good stand. It's easy to kill. Carbon to nitrogen ratio on the cereal rye is low. As cereal rye grows, the carbon to nitrogen ratio starts getting wider, which means it breaks down slower. You can see how much wheat residue I got out here to break down slow. I don't need to add to that problem on my clay pan soils with even more cereal rye. Okay, so on this right here and this right here, we ran that tillage implement real shallow. So we stirred a little dirt with it. And then we came in and no-till drilled with our 1990 drill, half a bushel acre cereal rye. And then we planted right into that in the spring. We terminated that the day or the day after we planted it. Okay, cereal rye, which is a great cover crop, probably the most popular one in the country. There's a few things I would recommend from experience. Either terminate it small or let it grow, especially on our clay pan soils. Because if you let your cereal rye get 18 inches or two feet tall and you go out there and terminate it and all of a sudden it starts raining and that stuff lays over on you, it's not gonna dry out under there. You're gonna have a mess. You guys are out there nodding. We've all had that problem. So you gotta let it grow. I mean, this year was such an aberration that you let it grow and you never did get it planted. That's gonna happen one out of 40 years. You, you plant cereal rye in the corn stalks, which is a really good cover. And you get a good stand and you kill it when it's about this tall, the carbon nitrogen ratio is probably 10 or 12 to one. That residue breaks down really fast. Provides you good cover early. Now, if you guys are after cover late in the summer and you want that cereal rye to get this tall, disregard that. But on my clay pan soils, I wanna kill it when it's like this, end of April, first of May, 
so that 15 days later I can go in and plant my beans. Because to get my soils to dry out, I need wind and sun to the soil surface. You got to watch cereal rye in a dry spring. We have those about one out of every 10. That stuff, once it starts, once it's jointed and the stem start elongating, that stuff will suck moisture out of your soil like you can't imagine. And we'll run into times when there's questionable enough moisture to get the beans up after cereal rye. It's going to happen. Planted early, cereal rye will develop a lot of tillers. After the summer of 2012, we got a corn harvest on August 20th. Of course, it wasn't very good, but we had uh, at 30, 35 pounds a acre, we had cereal rye plants out there with 15 tillers on them. Cereal rye will tiller like crazy. You got to watch your nitrogen management. And uh, Steve Berger went over that on what he does on his cereal rye in one of the earlier sessions. But you got to make sure you got nitrogen to your corn at all times if you've had cereal rye out there. You, I also have to watch voles. It's, it's probably my number one problem, but voles run in cycles like we know. The way I handle voles is after we plant wheat in the fall, wheat comes up. When our wheat breaks dormancy in the spring, it seems like the ends of the leaves are always brown. You can tell where your vole colonies out are because they'll come out of, their, out of their little runs and holes and nesting areas and they'll clip off that brown end of the wheat and they, I think they use it for their nesting underground and you'll have green patches in your field that are green and the rest of your wheat will still have those brown tips on them. So what we do is we ride a four-wheeler across the field and spread zinc phosphide tree to crack corn on the colonies because you can find them real easy. The other thing is don't let any coyote hunters run around your farm. And you want as many hawks around as you can possibly get. But sometime in your life, if you're raising stuff like I do, you're going to have voles. I looked on Google Earth about a year ago, and I was looking at my fields, because you can pick out the wet areas of your fields on Google Earth, on the maps, if they took the pictures at the right time. And there's a slider up at the top to where you can slide it across, and it, it'll take it from 2014 to 2013 to 2012 to 2011. And one of those maps is going to show you where your wettest areas are. But I, I was on there looking around, and here's this 160-acre field of double crop soybeans, and there's these little round brown patches out there. And I bet in that 168 acres, there was 180 vole colonies. Those brown patches were where the voles ate the double crop soybeans as they were coming up. So they can be a real problem. All right, spring of 2013, this is just to show you what one cover crop can do for your soil structure. This was no cover. I left a 60-foot strip across the field. It was in corn. You can see it's got winter annuals in it. There's pennycrest, henbit. This was cereal rye and rape. You see the difference? In, this, was, this was dug about 10 feet from this because I had to get across the line. See the difference in soil structure here than here? In that same field, the lower end of it, so I did uh, cereal rye and rape in the upper end. I left 60 feet of nothing, and then the rest of the field I did annual ryegrass and radish. This was 10 feet on the other side of the 60-foot line. That's what one year of cover crops can do for soil structure. Dave Brandt says you want your soil to look like coffee grounds. That right there looks a whole lot more like coffee grounds than that right there. 
right, we do split nitrogen applications. First thing we do in the fall after double crop bean harvest is spread poultry litter. I put 1.5 to 2 tons. I'm down to 1.5. Actually, this fall I didn't use any at all because the price of it's too high. Commodity prices are down. I want to spend money on tiling. So in place of this right here, the other thing is with poultry litter, your phosphorus tests go way up and your potash tests start sliding. So my phosphorus tests are real high. I'm going to spread 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate and 100 pounds of uh, potassium chloride in place of my poultry litter. Now remember, I got cereal rye on all my ground that's going to corn. I got to make sure that that corn is, does never not have enough oxygen. I'm going to start it off with 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate, uh, 29 pounds of nitrogen 2 by 2 with the planter. So I'm going to have, what is that, 50 pounds up front. Then I'm going to side dress the rest, and we usually side dress between 90 and 125 pound, 120 pounds of anhydrous ammonia. If you think of what I talked about as far as what happens to nitrate when the soil gets too much water in it, the, the microbes strip off one of those oxygens off of nitrate and turns it into uh, nitrous oxide gas and it gases off on you. If you look at this molecule, NH3, it's a positive molecule on anhydrous and it's much more stable in the soil. Those aerobic bacteria are not going to go after this nearly as fast as what they're going to go after nitrate. I think it's one of the reasons why anhydrous ammonia is so popular on clay pan soils. No, it's injected two by two. Do not. In my, in my wheat crop, I stream bar wheat on twice in the spring. I use the agritain that keeps it from volatilizing. I don't use the agritain that keeps it stable on the soil, but I'm putting it on top of all that residue, so I do use agritain there. I think it costs four bucks an acre for 100 pounds of nitrogen stream barred on wheat. I think that's a good, good value. We normally start side dressing at V3 because we get those periods where you can't get stuff side dressed for four, five, six weeks. So we start early. If, if, you, uh, if you side dress early and it stays dry, you're fine because you haven't lost your nitrogen anyway. If you side dress late at V6, 7, and it gets wet on you and you're not out there doing it, unless you got a high boy or something like that, we do it the old school way with an anhydrous knife applicator, you're going to have times when it's going to be tough to get it done. I was sweating that big time this year. All right, poultry litter. Why poultry litter? It aids in cover crop growth. It fuels microbes. They love the stuff. Provides season-long end release, and crops love it. I call it corn candy. It is absolutely wonderful. Anything that comes out the backside of an animal, in my opinion, is far superior to anything you buy at the fertilizer plant. Crops just love the stuff. All right, why just uh, nitrogen in the two by two? I think Joe Nestor spoke on this, but Peter Scarf at the University of Missouri did a study. Uh, here's the average over six sites. This was back in the late 90s. No starter was 136. These are all no-till farmers. Low nitrogen, high P, 148. Medium nitrogen, medium P, 149. Nitrogen only, 149. 
my phosphorus test since I've been using poultry litter off the chart. And if Joe Nestor is right in what he's saying, that the rainwater pH has gone up enough that, that phosphorus is now more available, it just plays right into what I'm doing. All right, why side dress? And I get back to risk management and crop production. Cargill taught me risk management. One of the biggest risks we have in corn production on clay pan soils is losing your nitrogen. And here's some pictures that Peter Scarf from University of Missouri took. This was in 2008. You guys can see where all the nitrogen's gone. 2009, 2010. This is a field he put out in 2010 checking different nitrogen application timings. 180 pounds in pre, 197 side dress. There's 147 side dress next to 100 pre. There's 140 pre. I mean, you guys can tell by this picture. Which one do you want? That's why I side dress. I side dress the most stable thing I can possibly side dress, and that's anhydrous ammonia, just because of this. So if you think about what I talked about, if you got terraces, those terrace channels are getting way more rain than the rest of your field. You need this even worse in your terrace channels. You guys that have yield monitors, if you're making your maps and you got terraces, I will bet that 90% of the time your terraces are averaging as high as they possibly can in the field versus terrace channels and other areas that water congregates. It's just the way water and nitrogen work. Variable rate corn seeding. All right, so how did I go about doing this? I have extremely variable soils. I got places in the fields that are rocky. I got terrace tops. I got good ground areas. What we did is we took a four-wheeler and we drove the circumference of the field. Then we drove every terrace right out of the channel on the back slope. Because I know those terraces are my highest producing areas. They get the highest rate of corn population because they always produce the most. They never suffer hardly for anything. So they get the high population. Then what we did is we treated each area in between the terraces as a mini field and we overlaid about five or six years of yield date over the top of that. And anything that was below 95% of field average got the low rate. Anything that was 95 to 105% of field average got the average rate or the medium rate. And anything over 105% of field average got the high rate. And then what I did is I looked at those maps after we made them, which I have to have somebody help me with this because I'm not good at manipulating this computer stuff. I know where my rocky spots are and I know, I mean, we've been farming these fields for a hundred years. We know what's what. So I went in there and I, we just tweaked some things. If there was an area where water congregated and it was wet and the yields were lower, I'm not gonna put the low population on that. What we did is we put tile in those swales, fixed the water problem, and now we have the high population in them. That's how we went about doing it. Uh, here's why I do it. 30,000 is too thick for the thin ground. I got rocky spots coming out of the side of, you know, out of the hills. There's no way. 30,000 is going to burn up eight out of 10 years for me. 24,000 is too thin for those terrace tops in the really good areas. That's why I variable rate corn plant. This is what my maps look like when I get done with them. This is what my populations look like two years ago. I, I continue to increase my populations. The rocky, the rocky areas, no. But these light green areas are probably getting 29 now, and the really good ground's getting 31. The field average on this one, which this, you can see this lower area here, is pretty, pretty poor stuff. 
But the upper area, the upper flat top of the hill is pretty good. All right, let's see here, what time is it? Pioneer has all these charts as to yield possibility levels and uh, so this is 200 bushel yield, this is 150 bushel yield. I try to put mine over in here as to figuring out what population to plant per hybrid. All right, the last thing is water use efficiency hybrid. Sometime in about six years out of 10, maybe eight out of 10, on our clay pan soils, we suffer from not enough water sometime in the corn's growing life. So here's kind of how I do it. Number one, on our clay pan soil, since they're wet in the spring, I try to choose good stress emergence hybrids. I do an on-farm variety plot every year. I, I plant Pioneer, not because I think it's the best, but I decided that I was gonna learn one company's hybrid lineup and one only. That way I knew what works good on my soils instead of using a so shotgun approach. And I also have a really good Pioneer dealer. I do a variety plot, and I'll show you some of the data here in a minute. I do mine where the soils vary. Uh, even though they vary, I don't variable rate my variety plot. I want to know what hybrids are going to do good under stress in those dry areas. Companies don't, I won't go into this, but they don't. I know that because Pioneer put a plot on me several years ago, and it rained three inches a night. The stand was from 14,000 to 28,000. We dropped 30,000. You can imagine what the yield curve looked like. 14,000 was the worst and 28,000 was the best, even though they had 15 hybrids in there. The top three hybrids, they didn't advance one of them from my area. So the Pioneer, I know, does not pick hybrids for stress emergence. They pick it for max yield, and they gotta pick hybrids all the way from Western Kansas to Ohio, something that works all the way across there. I avoid low-rate brittle snap hybrids. That's part of my risk management strategy. Why do I want to put all this work into something and all of a sudden let the thing snap off on me because Mother Nature, even though you can buy insurance on it, and I buy, I buy brittle snap insurance. If something's rated really low like Diplodia, Pioneer 1248 is a high yielding Aquamax hybrid. Yields well, but it's got a very low Diplodia score, probably a four out of 10. I threw it out of the lineup. I'm, I'm not going to plant that stuff. Why increase your risk when we have enough risk the way it is? All right, here's four years of data. These are high drought score hybrids. These are the low drought score hybrids. I put a plot of theirs in every year. In 2011, the high drought score hybrids, and that in 2011, it was an eight or nine out of nine. So their Aquamaxes are nines. Some of their eights should have been Aquamaxes, but Pioneer told me if they can't do an acre max, on that hybrid, they're gonna rate it an eight, even though it should be a nine. So like Pioneer 0993 would fit into a high drought score, even though it's rated an eight. So in 2011, these were the yields. This was the year it opened my eyes. 2012, we had a terrible drought, and I planted it on the worst ground, because most people want to plant their hybrid plots on their best ground, because it looks good when they put it in the book, you know, and all the other farmers in the whole state get to see it. I don't do that, I plant it on my worst ground. Because I want to know what those things will do under stress. And then when you get a year like 2014, when you got a really good year, I want to know what those drought hybrids will do under a really good year. I would encourage everybody, if you're not, to put in a hybrid plot. Especially if you're no-tilling on clay pan soils, because emergence is such an, such an important thing. 
Here's the yield from 2013. Well, this year here, you got, I got a 29 bushel bump just from the high drought score. You can tell we had dry weather because of the yields. I got a bump this year. Some of these racehorse hybrids that Pioneer had didn't even pollinate. Why in the world would I want to put something like that out there when I suffer from drought sometime in the crop's growing year? 2013, it got a little bit dry. That soil pit I showed you with the uh, corn roots down five feet deep, that was this year right here. I picked up 20 bushel with the high drought spore hybrids versus their, everything else is a racehorse. It, on, on Pioneers, if it doesn't have a high drought spore, it's pretty much a racehorse. 2014, the best growing year we ever had. These high drought spore hybrids weren't that far behind the racehorses, and these racehorses are the ones these guys are winning the National Corn Growers Contest with. 2088 and 15 whatever, and 1197 fits into that bill, which just cream things this year again across the Midwest. I plant those in my creek bottom, but I don't plant them on my clay pans. And I'm not giving up much in a really good year. And that's why I plan a plot every year because I don't want to take a shotgun approach as to what I'm doing. I'm trying to, I want my yields to go up and bounce around like this, not go up in a really good year and bounce around like this. This kills you. This doesn't kill you. Here's the averages. You know, you throw out 2012, which was a huge anomaly, things look pretty good. My son wrestled as a youth, and he had a youth wrestling coach. You know, once dads, dads all try to coach wrestling. Well, dad's knowledge of wrestling is very limited, so if the kid wants to get better, he's got to go to somebody better. Nick Perler was an All-American in Oklahoma State back in the 90s. The best youth, youth coach I've ever been around. My kids have done a lot of youth sports. This is something Nick told the kids in wrestling. If you want to get good at something fast, work on it so hard that it becomes one of your greatest strengths. And the other thing Nick told them was this. Figure out what you're weakest at and then do this. And Nick's point in wrestling was then you'll start beating kids that have been beating you for the last three or four years. Because you've taken out of your arsenal the weakest thing you have, and now it's one of your greatest strengths. And then when you work on your second weakest thing and make it a great strength, and then you work on your third weakest thing and make it a great strength, all of a sudden these kids have been getting killed by a lot of kids who are naturally better athletes because they were born that way. All of a sudden they start beating some of these kids. And the guys you see wrestling in the Olympics, those are the guys that have natural ability and do this. Think about that in your farming operation. That's what I think about in my crop insurance. That's what I think about in my marketing. That's what I think about in my crop production. Thank you to Eddie Hoff for talking about his no-till operation and sharing those key strategies to no-tilling heavy clay pan soils. If you would like to view any slides from Eddie's presentation, visit notillfarmer.com and click on podcasts under the resources tab. There you'll find a link to this episode where we'll have Eddie's PowerPoint presentation available. And just a reminder that if you'd like to learn more about the coffee table book we're producing, please visit notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream, where you can also pre-order the book. As I mentioned before, From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming will include over 200 pages of personal stories, photos, and the individuals and equipment that have influenced the practice. 
Again, the link is notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. I'd also like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Copperhead Ag, once again for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I look forward to your feedback on today's episode, so feel free to drop me an email at obarrera at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider and dryland no-tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and on our no-till farmer Facebook page. For Eddie Hoff, Copperhead Egg, and our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm Laura Guerrero. Thanks for listening.